This morning, the text for this morning is taken from Titus 2, and we'll be looking at the second half of Titus 2, verse 10. That they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, this week we are continuing our journey through the letter of Titus. For those of you who were here last week, you may remember that we touched down on the work of elders in the church. We saw how the elder is to be a steward of God, reflecting his name. How he is to be a role model in the church so that people can see their God-centered, their uh, godly walk of life, their Christ-centered, Christ-exalting homes, and in turn, give glory to God. In the verses that follow the passage we focused on last week, we see Paul contrasting this image against those who would be false leaders in the church. These are men who are, you might say, the antitype of the elder. Everything the elder is, these men are not. They are insubordinate, idle talkers, deceivers. These men bring down the wrath of God by their doctrine in life. And note again that this is a theme that comes back again and again through Titus. Doctrine being intimately connected to life. These men profess to know God. They say that they recognize what he has done for them, who he is, and yet they show themselves through their walk of life to be disqualified from teaching in the church. They want to take the wheel, but they don't know how to drive. And so Paul calls Titus to step up and oppose them. But now he also calls them in Titus 2 to respond in a second way. Not simply to oppose them, but he says, But as for you, speak the things which are proper in sound doctrine. But as for you. He's saying, don't be like these men, Titus. They might be persuasive. They might be good talkers. Outwardly, they might talk the talk, but they don't walk the walk. Line up doctrine and life. And as you live a Christ-saturated, God-exalting life, speak about it. Teach others to walk in the fear of the Lord. Guide them in how to walk with God. Show them that to walk with God is better than temporary gain. It's better than instant gratification. Better than iron-fisted control. You must walk with God so that you may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in all things. Beloved congregation, I bring you the Word of God as summarized under the following theme. And it's a little bit different than what we'll find in our bulletin. Trained by the saving grace of God, we are taught to adorn the gospel. Trained by the saving grace of God, we are taught to adorn the gospel. Now, we can take a step back for a moment to remind ourselves of where all of this this letter is coming from. When someone is put into a new position, they aren't simply thrown into the deep end. In any position, there is a period of training that can sometimes be as simple as having an orientation session or more complicated than that. But even with this training session under their belts, that person is not expected to simply know things. 
know how to run them. When they begin a new job, there are people on hand to mentor them, to teach them what they have to do and what they have to say. We have a similar situation with the Apostle Paul here. He has trained Titus and walked beside him. And now he's finally left him on his own out here in Crete. But when troubles arise, he's still willing to help out, to train Titus and to give him guidance on how to build up a young church. But as for you, he writes, speak the things which are proper for sound doctrine. And now he follows this up with what he means. Now, at this point, you'll notice that Paul flips his usual pattern on its head. Instead of starting with doctrine, the foundation for a changed life, he begins with the life itself. Now, there are people who take this and they run far too far with it. See, they say, Paul's interested in life here. It doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you, you are sincere, as long as you live a life that is pleasing to God. But what they are doing here is putting the cart before the horse. How in the world are you supposed to pull a load if you chain your truck to the back of the trailer and grab onto the front and start trying to heave it yourself? You have to see this passage in context. Titus is a smart man, and Paul recognizes this. He will see that, uh, he will see that apart from recognizing what God has done for us, and letting that carry us and guide us, we can't possibly begin to live life in a way that is pleasing to God. And if anyone doubted that, we only have to go as far as verse 11. That little word, for. That little word, for, shows that all of Titus 2, verse 1 to 10, is completely dependent on what follows. It's a grammatical construction that shows that it leads from one to the other. Its basis is in verse 11 and following. It shows that we are dependent on the grace of God that brings salvation. The order may have been switched up in teaching, but the grounds certainly haven't. We are totally dependent on the person and work of Christ to allow us to carry this out. It's impossible to get anywhere unless we understand that absolutely integral point. Every command that follows in verses 1 to 10, every command that follows must be taken in light of this. It must be taken in light of the fact that our actions cannot contribute to our salvation. That our actions adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. This adornment is described in our passage as specifically aimed towards slaves, but it's true for all of the above. For men, women, and children. And you can see that because it's a summary of everything Paul teaches in his other letters as well. It highlights the fact the life we live doesn't earn salvation but it impacts the spread of the gospel and our representation of our almighty God. Now you may have noticed that the instructions for Titus aim at the typical household in the ancient world. First, interaction with the older men and older women is addressed, and then younger women and younger men 
Many of them would be sons and daughters. And then finally, the slaves. That was the entirety of the household in the ancient Roman world. Every person in the home was dealt with. There was no one in the church at Crete who could say, this isn't for me, because the gospel is for everyone. There is not one person who can easily conclude that the Lord did not appropriately direct him in how he should live in response. Paul begins with deal- by dealing with the older men. The reason for this was because they were the heads of the family, and you can see this throughout his other letters as well. They were expected to guide and to teach the family to represent to them what a gospel-drenched life should look like. We read in 1 Corinthians 11, verse 3, the foundation for their authority, the uh, way that they should represent themselves to the rest of their family. It says here, But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. They find themselves ultimately under the leadership of Christ and ultimately answerable to him. They are to have authority and leadership to train up those under their care in the love of the Lord. For as fathers, they represent our Father in heaven as well. As heads of the families, they represent Christ as head of the church. It's their task to lead in a godly and sacrificial way devotedly loving their families and their wives. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He states, first of all, that older men must be sober. In the ancient world, this was an issue. If you wanted to have a party, a political gathering, or anything of the like, alcohol would flow freely. And even at home, this could be a problem. Now men, when you drink to excess, you lose control of yourself. And this does impact your relationship with your children. For how then will you be able to represent Christ to your children in the way you should? You are a leader in your home. Don't compromise this. You are to be reverent. Say someone new comes to you asking about the faith, perhaps even a coworker or an employee. How are they to take faith seriously if you are not reverent? And what about your children looking up to you? If you're not reverent with regards to the things of God, they'll be even less likely to be so. You are to be temperate. The word that is used here can also be translated as dignified, prudent, or sensible. The idea is that of someone who has wisdom and is very clear about the right way to to go. As you age, the right and wrong things to do line up in your mind more clearly because you've lived long enough to see the consequences of different actions. Now, what this command calls you to do is to narrow the gap between what you see in your best judgment as far as it is in obedience to the word of God and how you actually act. So you see the way that God is commanding you to go. And you know the right way that you should go. But if there is a gap between 
what you know and how you act. You're called to bring that together. You're called to be sound in faith, in love, and in patience. And the idea behind the word sound is healthy. There's a parallel between health in contrast with the infirmity that age brings on and health or soundness in your spiritual life. Christ calls us to be sound in faith, in love, and patience. How do we maintain this? How do we grow? We are called to devote ourselves to the word of God. Dive into it with a desire and a passion. Ask forgiveness of your children and wife and of God your Father when you fail. And speak of your faith openly in front of children, striving to live it out. Because that has an effect. Consider how damaging hypocrisy is when you see it around you. And then in contrast, consider what an amazing impact a God-dependent, Lord-glorifying life will have on them. You have the opportunity, the amazing privilege to mirror who God is in some, and in some small aspect of his character to mirror who he is in the leadership of your home. Stand in awe of the great task that you have been given and pray that by your life you may adorn the doctrine of God for all those who are in your care. Older women, you are also called to be sound or healthy in faith, in love and in patience. And our passage goes on to expand how this has worked out. You are called to be reverent in behavior. The word here carries out carries with it the idea of carrying yourself in a way that you would in, a temp- in temple worship in the ancient Near East. And now this is not to say that you can't have fun and must be solemn at all times, but it means that you take seriously the fact that you belong to God. You are called not to be slanderers. When you are a bit older and you have more time on your hands and you're able to travel around from place to place, to be a help and a support in the congregation, there is also a danger that can attend with this. It provides opportunity for gossip. And Christ calls us to guard our speech in relation to others. You are not to be given to much wine. Paul is being realistic here. He mentions this point with regards to older men, but also wants to point out that women are just as, like, are just as able to abuse alcohol. So you are to reflect on how you represent yourself before the younger generation. Whether you realize it or not, you have an impact. Younger women will look up to you. Now do you joke about going to the bottle after a hard day with the kids for one, two, three, or more drinks? That will have an impact. Christ is calling you to be an example of sober, respectful, and loving service to those around. And if there was any doubt that God sees you as having an impact, as having a sway over the young women who are around you, let the very next command take it away. You are to be teachers of good things. Consider that. You are to be teachers of good things. 
You are to take opportunities to give advice, to speak about the power and work of God in your life, and to share that with the life of the person that you have the opportunity to spend time with. And young woman, this gives you an opportunity to listen to the wisdom of these older women and to learn from their experience as well. Many of you do take advantage of these opportunities, and it's a wonderful thing. Continue to do so. This is the adornment for the doctrine of God our Savior. Finally, the Holy Spirit gives a specific command to older women. Admonish young women to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, homemakers, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be blasphemed. It's necessary to spend a bit more time on this because there is a lie connected to this that is so pervasive that it has seeped into every aspect of our society. This verse grates on our North American ears. But Paul, that's not politically correct. That's oppression. If you think that oppression is too strong of a word for North America... Let me read a quote for you. Feminist icon Simone de Beauvoir wrote, No woman should be authorized to stay at home to raise her children. Society should be different. Again, the radical feminist Ellen Herman once wrote that she sees the family, especially the Western, patriarchal, bourgeois, and child-centered nuclear family as the most important source of women's oppression. The suggestion that a woman stays at home to raise the children is almost blasphemous in their eyes. It's reflective of society today, isn't it? You can see this kind of an attitude spread far and wide in our universities. And it's had an effect on those who have been educated by them as well. You see it rising up in the next generation of educators teaching young children. You see it rising up in the entertainment industry. You see it rising up in talk show hosts everywhere. Children have grown up to listen to screenwriters, actors, writers, and talk show hosts, and we ourselves are bombarded by these messages as well. And many in the church have bought into this hook, line, and sinker. Do you think you are unaffected? That maybe your position is of your own making? Think about that for a moment. I spoke with a young woman in high school a few years back and asked her what she wanted to do. She said, well, one day I want to be a wife and a mother. Reactions to that statement can be pretty telling. Many flinch and squirm at the thought of this. Many stand aghast. The automatic reaction to this question is, well, yeah, but what do you want to do? You'll find the same question asked of some young mothers as well. Their young single friends come over, or even, if, even their husbands, if they're really asking for trouble, and they ask, what do you do all day? 
Husbands, think about what you're doing when you ask such a question. You're suggesting that her work is less valuable than yours simply because she's not getting paid. If you tell her that because you don't see her working with the children through the day and you come home and that she does, tell her that she does nothing of worth all day, you are contributing to this. You're contributing to an ideal that has destroyed many homes, broken down many marriages in the name of liberation of woman. Because to be a wife and a mother is not enough. Why is this a question that is asked? It's because the natural reaction to hearing somebody say that they want to be a wife and a mother is to say there's no future to that. There's no satisfaction in that. To be fulfilled, you need a real job. Because being a wife and a mother, spending your time taking care of and being intimately involved with the raising of beautiful covenant children is seen as meaningless. Carrying out your biblical God-ordained work in the home has become a thankless task. Brothers, women who stay at home with their children should be praised Honor them for their hard work and their commitment. Don't denigrate it. Older women, encourage younger women who are going through this time. Help them to see the glorious beauty of the task and the incredible responsibility that they are granted. Because when they feel exhausted, when their husbands are perhaps less appreciative than they should be, when the children are creating a mess for the thousandth time today, they won't feel it. And that's why it's such an important factor to have the older woman involved in helping out the younger woman with regards to this. Now, is God saying here that a single woman can't have a career, can't have an education? Is he saying that wives should not get involved in things outside the home? Must a woman's sole purpose in life be found in the four walls of a home, cut off from the rest of the world? Radical feminism would have you believe that that is the picture that biblical womanhood would provide for you. They say that's the only alternative to their liberated view. But what about the wife of noble character in Proverbs 31? She's trained in merchandise, creating and selling it. She's educated enough to know about the workings of a field, to know its value, to be able to consider that field and buy it. She's involved in all kinds of things, and on top of that, it takes time to stretch out her hands to the needy. Women are very well able to expend time, resources, and effort outside the home if they so desire. There was never a question about that in the first place. And so we can see that radical feminism has little to stand on. The only protest that they are able to raise is that the Bible here in our passage calls them to make our families a priority. For families are, as this woman Herman said, the source of oppression. The biblical calling to care for children is a ball and chain, as they see it, a plague on society that, would, that should be removed at all costs in the name of equality. And that is the doctrine of the world.
But raising families as a wife and mother is a beautiful task, a privileged task, even as difficult as it can be, seem at some times. Don't give in to the doctrine of the world that devalues it, that makes you feel like you are not contributing. You are raising the next generation of covenant children. God praises your task in Psalm 127. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are children of one's youth. In Proverbs 17, they are described as the crown for grandparents in their old age. And in Matthew 18, it says that their angels see the face of God in heaven. You are the ones who are involved with taking care of these wonderful covenant gifts of God that he has placed under you. Another aspect of the husband and wife relationship that is often misunderstood is one of wife's, the wife's obedience or submission to the husband. Now, there are three things that need to be kept in mind with regards to this command that the Holy Spirit gives. First, there is a practical reason that's behind this command. When a husband and wife are joined together, they become one flesh. When you get married, you become one unit in the eyes of God. But being one unit does not mean that you automatically become one person, always instantaneously being in agreement with everything. So how do you deal with that? Say that you're driving a car with two steering wheels. You come to an intersection. What do you do? Well, if the drivers are in agreement, this works well. They both turn left. But what if the one wants to turn left and the other one wants to go right? How far do you think they'll get? They'll run into an accident. It's only when one submits to the will of others and lets that person chart the course that you can safely get from point A to point B. Now, this is not to say that a woman can't have her own ideas or that she must agree with her husband on every decision that he makes. But the Holy Spirit is calling her to submit to her husband, the one who bears the weight of leadership, the one who carries the responsibility assigned to him by God, who will be accountable before God on the way that he leads and guides his family. He'll be accountable before God Almighty on the day of judgment. So think about that. And sometimes when it feels like your husband is just not making the right decision, if it's not in conflict with the word of God, but it just feels like he's not making the right decision, while you may not feel like you can be obedient to your husband, but consider instead that you are being obedient to your Father in heaven. Second, husbands, it's important to note that this submission command doesn't fall under your umbrella. The Holy Spirit directed this command at your wife, not at you. There might be some husbands who think, she's not submitting to me. She's not submitting to me. Well, you know what? I'm going to make her submit to me then. When their wife disagrees, they heap on verbal abuse, drag up all the mistakes she's made in the past, and maybe even raise their hands. 
Does that sound like what we find in Ephesians 5? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and laid himself down for her that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word. Husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as the Lord does the church. This is how you are called to respond, husbands. If you feel your wife is not being submissive, consider for yourself, are you being a God-honoring man, a man who leads with love and respect, who takes his wife and his family's needs into account? Are you making it easy for those in your family to follow your lead? Are you being a leader in the home under the word of God? Are you discipling your children? Are you discipling your wife? And are you leading them as fellow saints who are under your care, whose physical and spiritual well-being has been entrusted to your leadership? Wives, your husbands will fall short in their leadership. Do you have patience with their weaknesses and shortcomings? Do you pray that God may grant them wisdom in their leadership? Do you pray that you might be given the strength to submit to their leadership, not unconditionally, blindly, or unthinkingly, but in the same way as the church submits to Christ? Out of love, out of a desire for unity and purpose and person. Husbands and wives, when your relationship is in turmoil, when there is abuse, when the husband coerces his wife, the wife constantly belittles and disrespects her husband, the world looks at the church and laughs. This is what happens when you serve God. And as our passage says, God's name is blasphemed because of it. But when you have a truly God-honoring home, when there is unity, direction, and purpose, when there's sacrificial love and godly leadership reflective of the relationship relationship between Christ and the church, it's a beautiful thing. This is adornment for the doctrine of God our Savior. Young men, be sober-minded in all things. For you, young men, this is hard. The world tells you that nobody takes you seriously. Society invented this idea of adolescence stretching on right into our late 20s, where young men are free to party, to act irresponsibly, to live hypocritically, because that's just youthful enthusiasm. Boys will be boys, they say. But the Holy Spirit has a word for you as well. In all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works. Be an example for those around demonstrate the grace of God that brings salvation in your life. Pray that God would grant you the strength for you to know that it's only by him that you are able to do this. And show the world that it is possible by that power to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, living soberly, righteously, and godly in this present age, in this present godless age then you will show the world what true manliness is, namely being a man after God's own heart. 
in doctrine, show integrity. It's easy to talk the talk. Think about what this talk symbolizes and apply the gospel message to your life. Do so in a way that shows reverence and incorruptibility. Now the idea here is not an idea, uh, not showing this in a way of dullness or drabness, but you're being called to show this in a way of sparkling mature enjoyment of all of life. Let your speech be sound. It's easy to descend into locker room talk, but practice and train yourself in purity of speech. This is important because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Trying to train your heart in reverence and incorruptibility without training your mouth will be difficult. But train your heart and mouth together and you'll begin to see the fruit of that. Then those who are your opponents who may try to call you out for hypocrisy or wrongdoing, shoddy speech or flawed logic may be ashamed having nothing evil to say about you. And finally, bondservants. We don't have slavery today, but many of those same principles can be carried over to employees and employers. Not constantly challenging your boss on every point, every little point, but doing your best in all things. Not answering back, not stealing, but being faithful that you may adorn the doctrine of God for them and that you may draw them in. Again, in all of this, we have to remember the reason. The reason that we must have for all of this is to adorn the doctrine of God. We have been redeemed through our Savior Jesus Christ. We have been made pure in him. In Christ, all of our sins are covered over. And so, perhaps for many of us, looking back on the years that we have not carried out these things, that we have not lived in a way that was pleasing to God, that we have not lived in a way that adorned the gospel, when we look on a list like this, this can feel like such a heavy weight dragging us down. But we need to remember. We need to remember that in Christ, all of this has been covered over. That in Christ, we have found someone who has been perfect as a leader, who has been perfectly submissive, who has been perfect in love, who has been perfect in integrity. And because of that, we can have the courage to know that God looks upon us and he sees us as perfect in light of that. And so our Lord Jesus Christ has set us free, free to live for him, denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, living soberly, righteously, and godly in his present age. And when you fall short, recognize this, that Christ has liberated us to live for him. No longer do we need to fall under the oppressive feeling of having failed time and again. For in Christ, these sins are covered over. Each day is a new day. Each failure is not a setback, but simply a reminder of where we came from and spurs us on to look continually forward. We can live in hope, in eager expectation for what is coming. 
There is a world that's coming in which we'll no longer have to live in oppression of sin. Let us live looking forward to the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus. Looking forward to the one who gave himself for us to redeem us from all our sins. He purifies for us for himself and lights a fire in his heart. And he does this because we are his own special people. He is the one who has chosen us and who makes us zealous. Now let us adorn this with our lives. Amen.